Welcome to Research Insights, an occasional podcast from the Federal Reserve Bank of Atlanta. We're talking today with Ed Glazer, professor of economics at Harvard University. He's in Atlanta to speak at a conference here at the bank on the subject of economics of urban growth. Good to see you, Ed. Thank you for coming here. Thank you for having me. I'd like to begin just with a simple question about your work on house prices in the southeast. And can you tell me how changes in house prices in this region have compared with the rest of the country? Since the peak of the housing market in April 2006, Atlanta's housing prices, according to the Case-Shiller Index, are down about 19%. That doesn't sound good, but it's actually 10% better than the 30% drop for the Case-Shiller 20-city average. That 20-city average, of course, contains cities like Phoenix, which have dropped 50% from the peak. And certainly relative to that sort of extreme, Atlanta looks pretty stable. The real difference across metropolitan areas in in the extent of the decline seems to be explained primarily by the extent of the boom during the previous five years. There's an enormously tight correlation between the growth in housing prices between 2001 and 2006 and the decline in housing prices between 2006 and 2009. Atlanta had less of a boom, and so it had less of a bust. And I think part of the reason for that is that Atlanta's relatively permissive building environment, its ready availability of land, ensured a fairly substantial construction response to rising prices, which mitigated uh, the price the price rise on the on the upside. Well, a big part of the story of the Southeast is population growth, and people over the recent decades have moved to Atlanta and the Southeast at a rapid pace, and the region has grown more rapidly than the rest of the country in terms of population and the economy, and the financial crisis and the recession seems to have changed that. How would you describe the impact of the recession and financial crisis in your latest data and research in this region? The starting point, as you said, is that the Atlanta metropolitan area has grown by 1.12 million people between 2000 and 2008. That's the latest census data that I was able to find. That, of course, means that Atlanta grew more than any other metropolitan area in the country other than Dallas. It was an extraordinary eight years, and in fact, it's been an extraordinary 30 years of growth for the city. The growth of Atlanta in the longer run is, is fueled by a combination of economic strength, some of which is just the resurgence of the South more generally, the fact that the South in 1950 was still a fairly poor part of the country and poorer areas tended to do better than richer areas did because capital moved to places where labor was cheaper and because the South changed from having, shall we say, difficult institutions for economic growth to having very pro-growth economic institutions. Coupled with those forces which led to economic uh, resurgence in, in the South, Atlanta also had, as did Dallas, as did Houston, as did Phoenix, this very permissive building policy, the pro-housing growth environment, which meant that unlike, say, coastal California, rising housing demand was met with enormously elastic supply and a vast amount of new homes were brought on market. Now, in the long run, even over five to ten year periods, which isn't even that long, the number of people in a metropolitan area is pretty closely tied to the number of homes in a metropolitan area. In fact, the correlation over ten year frequencies is pretty perfect. And you can bet in places like Boston or coastal California where it's difficult to build either because of geography or just as often because of land use regulations that make it difficult to build. Rising demand cannot be sated by housing supply. So prices go up, but new construction doesn't. 
It's all very basic economics 101. In a place like Atlanta, any sort of rise in demand is met effortlessly, seemingly, by new homes being built. So relatively good economic environment is combined with this perfectly elastic housing supply, and you have massive housing growth, and since there are people living in those homes, massive population growth. Now, of course, the issue is that between the years prior to 2006, Atlanta built an enormously large number of homes, and Atlanta, more than any other metropolitan area in this country, has had an incredible cutback in the number of homes, at least as measured by the number of permits. Atlanta went from having 74,000 permits per year in 2005 to less than 7,000 in 2009, according to the preliminary figures. That's the largest drop of any metropolitan area in the country. And there are good reasons for that. Given that you built so much during the boom, you've got this enormous hangover, as the country does. On top of that, at the countrywide level, right, we haven't been forming new households at the normal rate at all, as opposed to, you know, a normal rate of 1.3 million. We're forming less than 600,000, according to the March CPS numbers. I think it's going to be a tough number of years for the housing market and for the construction market in Atlanta. I think it'd be odd to believe otherwise. But that shouldn't make us think that Atlanta doesn't have a solid longer-term future. Its combination of scale and skill is a powerful one. And, and as a result, I'm, you know, I, I bet that Atlanta's going to weather this, but it may well be a tough, tough couple of years ahead. Well, what do you think is going to replace the housing industry for employment and business growth here in the southeast, especially Georgia, where you know, carpet manufacturing and, and housing was so important to drive employment growth? What's going to replace that? One of the great problems of cities is that the genius of cities is inherently unpredictable, right? The magical things that happen when smart people connect in dense, large metropolitan areas like Atlanta is that they come up with new ideas, they come up with new industries, they come up with new occupations, they they figure out new ways to employ people. As a result, it's very hard to figure out where the new jobs will come from. I would bet they're more likely to show up in information-intensive industries. I'd bet they're more likely to show up in industries that are connected with the larger world because of the ability of cities to be gateways across oceans and continents. There is, however, a big problem, right, which is that all this talk about sort of information-intensive industries doesn't suggest a lot of jobs for construction workers. And this is, of course, a problem that's not just Atlanta's problem. It's America's problem, right, that we have a we have a problem that the building boom employed a lot of people with relatively modest levels of, shall we say, traditional human capital. They certainly had lots of skills and other in, in specific dimensions. The downturn has created a tremendous unemployment gap between people with college degrees where the unemployment rate hovers around 5%, and people who are high school dropouts with the unemployment rate hovers around 15%, right? There's an incredible gulf that's associated with, with those skill gaps. And I don't think it's very easy to imagine what in the long run are going to be the big new employers of less skilled workers. I think it's likely to be, continue to be the service sector. But, you know, certainly at the national level, it's hard not to think that the best long-run solution is to improve our investment in this nation's human capital. You've done some work on enterprising businesses, and in your research, have you discovered any secret to kind of creating a critical mass of enterprising businesses as we see in Silicon Valley? If so, uh, what's the trick to making that happen? (laughs) Um, You know, there's no pixie dust that you can just sprinkle over a location and, and make it work. It is certainly true. We just think about Silicon Valley, about what happened. Uh, Above all, it it was Stanford, and the roots of Silicon Valley go back to Federal Telegraph, which was a a wireless company before World War I. 
Federal Telegraph was founded originally by a, you know, just a young genius who was working on these technologies in San Francisco and then got put in the hands of one of the smartest young electrical engineering students at Stanford. And that's where its comparative advantage came. And, and I think throughout, if you look at Silicon Valley, it's this combination of education of being smart about science with this thing that was coded into the university that Leland Stanford formed, which is this very practical sign, right? Stanford was very clear that he didn't want a place that felt like Harvard, right? He wanted a place that felt like it was engaged with the, with the real world. The variable that best predicts urban growth over the 20th century is January temperature. But after January temperature, the share of the population with college degrees is, is a pretty darn good predictor of which places are getting both more populated and, and wealthier. On average, as the share of the population with college degrees in an area increases by 10%, the wages of other workers in that area increase by 8%, holding their skills constant. If there's one sort of you know magic ingredient for human capital success, it's for entrepreneurial success in these high-tech areas. It's having robust universities that are engaged with the real world. Beyond that, there are other advantages which Silicon Valley had, right? It happens to be an enormously pleasant place to live, and as a result, you know, very successful, very wealthy people actually want to live there, which is an added plus. And just a, as a sort of third thing, which, which I think is probably proved to be, there's still debate on this, but California has only a limited amount of enforcement of non-compete clauses, which makes it very easy for people to go and spin off and create new firms. Well, one of the things I wanted to ask you before you go is about fiscal problems. And obviously, at the state and local level, there are uh, an abundance of problems with budgets and fiscal issues. And what does that suggest for urban growth? Well, there's surprisingly little connection between most measures of government spending and urban success over the past 40 years. Somewhat surprisingly, if you go back to 1960, a higher level of debt per capita at the city level actually positively predicted subsequent growth. Now, the reason for that is actually not all that surprising, that the places that actually were growing for completely unrelated reasons had to borrow to build infrastructure to accommodate that growth. But it, it does suggest, at the very least, that debt isn't automatically a terrible thing at the, at the local level if that debt is being used for something that's productive. That being said, I think there's no question that good government services are important. The evidence on tax levels is mixed because it's not that when money is being taxed and spent on things that are valued, like good education, it's not a particularly bad thing to have local taxes. If the money is being you know, taxed and wasted, it clearly must be bad. But we have such poor measures of the quality of local government services along many dimensions that it's very hard to actually you know, say for certain any of these relationships. So anything that I say has to be taken with a fair degree of skepticism. I think the states and localities right now face this awful you know, quandary. They're sitting at this position where the demand for public services are greater than ever. And yet they often face very strong arrangements that stop them from borrowing to actually meet those services and their revenues have plummeted. Neither option is good. Cutting services, particularly along you know, areas like education or, or things that, that impact the quality of life, can be enormously uh, detrimental. On the other hand, raising taxes can be enormously costly uh, as well. And I don't think there are any easy answers. I do think the federal government is playing a, a helpful role in some ways by easing the financial constraints facing states during this particular time period. But uh, if I were sitting in a mayor's office or in a governor's office, the long-run strength of the state depends upon its retaining its human capital. And the critical thing is to not cut the services that are going to push out skilled people and to not 
particularly view them as a golden goose that can be taxed with impunity. And unfortunately, that really does limit what you can do. The other piece of advice that I would give is this is a great time to rethink those regulations that may be imposing costs that don't need to be there, right? Then actually, given that you can't, you know, raise taxes, you don't want to cut services, the one place where you can actually act right now is on the regulatory line, and I think that's the best chance to actually do something positive during this downturn at the state and local level. Very good. Well, it's interesting analysis. Thanks, Ed. Appreciate your time. Again, we've been speaking with Ed Glazer of Harvard University. This concludes our Research Insights podcast on the economics of urban growth. Thanks for listening, and please return for more podcasts.